Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. There's never been more information available to investors, but how do you avoid drowning in data? We've gathered our favorite investing tools from across the web to help. And what's more, they're free. Get ready for asset valuation, fund selection, and portfolio modeling made easy. And in today's dumb question of the week, do backtests really work? Okay, let's get into it. So, Romin, I have one goal for this podcast episode, and that is to stop it becoming one long morning session for your lack of a Bloomberg terminal these days. Oh, how I miss it. It was almost like a friend because it was always there when I got in. I had my coffee in the morning, I'd look at the news, I'd look at all the latest pricing. All day long, I could download any kind of prices I want from any global market. The fixed income coverage was unbelievable. Any bond in the world I could get the pricing for. There's a tear running down your cheek right now. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, it still smarts. And if I see a Bloomberg terminal, just a screenshot of one, I get this kind of itch in my fingers. I just desperately want it. And that's the tool that professional investors use when they're looking at markets and different investments. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a badge of the front office. If you sit in the front office and you're client facing, you get a Bloomberg terminal. Until the latter days of banking, when people started switching over to inferior products. I shouldn't say that, but they are inferior. But as long as I stayed at the bank, they wouldn't have prized my Bloomberg terminal away unless it was for my cold, dead hands. Well, then they fired you and the hands were cold and dead. <laughs> they took it back, right? <laughs> so what do you use nowadays, right? If you can't use Bloomberg, do you have to sort of cobble it together from all sorts of other sources? Yeah, I mean, you take what you can. And, you know, some of the things I pay for, some of the things I don't. I do tend to lean more heavily towards the paid for sources more than the free ones now. But when I first started out, it was all free stuff. You know, people have been using things like Yahoo Finance for a long time. That's a great source of ETF data. It's good for single stocks as well. Weirdly, not so good for the UK market. And it has gaps in it. Sometimes you find these kind of crazy price fluctuations, which aren't real. It's just because the data is patchy. So, you know, that was one of the first ones I used. Google Finance as well was good. You could hoover some of that stuff into a spreadsheet. And that was one of the great things about Bloomberg. It had an API. So you could, in Excel, just have a spreadsheet where columns were identifiers for securities. And then it would fill it in with the actual pricing data. So it was incredible. You could just download anything you wanted. And I use that more, I think, than the actual Bloomberg terminal itself. People do that kind of thing with Google Finance, I know, that there is an API where you can import data. There is. And I think the function itself is called Google Finance. It's nowhere near as broad in its coverage. But if you can find the ticker, and that's half the problem, then you can get the data. Pretty good for single stocks, very good for US stocks, obviously not so much for the UK. And for fund data, it's fairly patchy. But finding those identifiers is very difficult. One tool I think a lot of retail investors are using these days is Coifin, isn't it? Which is kind of replicating the Bloomberg terminal experience. And they do have a free tier as well as paid options, which give you more functionality. Is it replicating Bloomberg? I'm not sure that it is. I think it's a great platform on its own if you don't compare it with Bloomberg. Bloomberg has fixed income coverage, and that's what's incredible about it. It covers almost every bond in the world, whereas Coifin's very much geared towards 
funds, but also stocks. I think Coifin's great because it does have some really nice things built into it. You know, if you look at valuation, it's very good for that. Things like dividend histories for funds, I think that's very helpful. So if you're looking at high yield, for example, just seeing that yield history for a high yield bond fund shows you when the opportunities are really there. Their charting functionality is actually pretty good. I know when we're pulling together the newsletter, Coifin is actually really good for pulling together multiple time series and combining it into a pretty chart quite quickly. But just that link creation, I think, is great so that you can have any chart you want and just click on share and it generates this kind of gobbledygook link, which is quite short, which you can then share with someone else and they'll have exactly the same graph pop up. I think that's very powerful. But they've also now got FRED data built into it. This economic data from the US, this is another one we'll probably talk about, but that's kind of integrated into Coifin as well. So you can superimpose macroeconomic data with market data if you know how to use the graphs. So it is very powerful. Well, let's talk about FRED now, because that's a tool we've referenced many times, and it does have just an encyclopedia's worth of different economic data, which you can play around with. And it's all free. And again, this is one that really shows up the Bank of England, because for the Federal Reserve in St. Louis to create something so powerful is just an incredible gift. It has almost every type of economic variable you could hope for in the United States. So if you want GDP, you want inflation, it's updated almost in real time as these things are published. But it's not just those, is it? It's everything. Unemployment, retail sales, industrial production. There's hundreds and hundreds of different series on there. They've even got Bank of England data. So the Bank of England published a millennium of data so like a thousand years of history for the UK. I mean, almost as a joke, I mean, who cares what GDP was in the 1500s? But what does that even mean? But it is interesting that they do share that from other central banks and from other third parties. So if you did want to look at FRED, the web address is fred.stlouisfed.org. And I'm not going to read out the web address for all the tools we're covering because that is interminable. Just look in the show notes. Now, I'm always looking at macroeconomic data. So if I want to superimpose something like inflation versus GDP or 10-year yield versus GDP or even combine market data with GDP, I download the data. And even simple things like the date format is in an easily passable format for any kind of computer program or for importing to Excel if you're into that kind of thing. I put it into R, of course. So just little things they've really sorted out and made very easy to use. Or if you want to plot year-on-year change rather than level, all of that's just very easy from the menus they've got. So exporting's good, graphing is good, zooming in on a time series that's consistent across the whole database. So broad coverage, good interface, easily downloadable. Compare that with the Bank of England, where it feels like Raiders of the Lost Ark trying to find things like break-even data. Whereas on FRED, you just type break-even, and the first choice is the one that everyone uses. So I was going to say, like, as investors, what use is FRED? And I guess something like break-even is a great example, right? Where if you're deciding between a nominal government bond and an inflation-linked bond, the break-even is maybe the most important number you'll look at. Yeah, that's one good example. But there are just so many things like yield histories for bonds. If you want to see what's happened to yield over the last year or so, for Fred, it's really easy. 
they have one year, two year, five year, all the way up to 30 year, I think, US yields. Another one would be things like surveys. So things like the senior loan officers survey for the US, which is one of the things the Fed looks at about credit conditions. Now, credit conditions govern not just the credit market, but things like the equity market. So if bank loans are getting tougher to get, you want to know that because it negatively impacts a lot of companies. So it sounds like if you see yourself as a macro investor, someone who's looking at the broad economic picture and making asset allocation decisions based on that, Fred is like a goldmine for you. Or even just working out what the hell's going on. Because, you know, sometimes you'll see the price of gold tanking or surging. And the three variables you'd look at would be inflation, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with real yield, that's nominal yield minus the rate of inflation. You can find that straight from Fred. You don't have to do the inflation adjustment yourself. And the third thing would be the strength of the US dollar versus a trade-weighted basket of other currencies. And again, you can just pull that straight out of Fred. Or if you're a pension craft member, you can use one of your tools, which pulls all those three things for you. Indeed. <laughs> Always got to have a little plug as we go along, Roman. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think what's great is that it's all at your fingertips, all the stuff that you'd normally need. Somehow they, they seem to kind of read your mind about what you'd actually like to see. It's kind of unusual for a government agency, isn't it? We associate them with bodged together IT projects. Well, they've actually nailed it for once. I mean, as someone super basic, what I really love about Fred is the charts. Forget the data. The charts are beautiful and you can zoom them in and make them look pretty. But maybe the prettiest of all the tools we'll talk about today is something called Finviz. Do you use this much, Roman? Not much anymore. I certainly used to because it was really useful for the newsletter. I thought it was a nice way of summarising markets. One of the things it does is it has a heat map. So, for example, you've got the entire S&P 500. The size of blocks in this heat map is proportional to their market cap. So the one thing it tells you which is useful is which are the biggest sectors, which are the biggest stocks. You can immediately see that. So Apple looks absolutely huge. And you can see which are red and green over the past day or whatever period you want, which is, again, really useful. Just as a glance, you can go, wow, that sector has been wiped out. But it's used as fodder for memes all the time because you can superimpose a picture of Powell flicking the Vs in front of an all-red heat map. You know, I, I, just, I just think it's great. As I said, I'm super basic, and that is the kind of thing I appreciate in investing tools. <laughs> but I think we've sold Finviz a bit short. They also have things like stock screeners and portfolio modeling and stuff like that. And talking about fund screeners, there are two tools which are really useful. In the UK, perhaps the best way of searching for ETFs is a website called Just ETF. Good name. And it is very, very, very good. Now, whenever people ask me the question, what is a fund that gives me exposure to X? I immediately go to Just ETF. And often now, members of the community beat me to it. So the Just ETF link pops up just as I'm about to paste it. That's the thing now. The community almost runs itself. You don't often need to say anything. This is it. They can predict what I'm going to say anyway. But say, for example, you want a US small cap ETF, then that's so easy to find on Just ETF. It also has these kind of cool summaries where it looks at a theme and then it finds all of the funds which give you exposure to that theme. And then you can sort by expense ratio because people know I don't like to pay a lot for the funds. 
and it tells you whether it's accumulation or income and gives you the ISIN code right at the top, which is another bugbear I've got. Because if you want to search for a given instrument on your platform, the ISIN code gives you a kind of unique way to do that. And it's often buried deep in the website. I like the way you can take an index which you're interested in, say it's some kind of MSCI index, plug it into Just ETF and see all the different tracker funds for it, and then quite easily select one which is relatively cheap. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I love that feature. If you know which index you're going for, it's just amazing. Like if you want FTSE All World, which is one people often want, or MSCI All Country World Index, Acqui, it's very good. Because if you know the index you want to track, basically all you want is something which tracks it accurately and cheaply and has enough assets that it's not going to get shut down tomorrow. You know, maybe you want accumulation or income, but that's a, that's a kind of nice to have. So for UK investors, Just ETF is the place to go. But for US investors, I think the best fund screener is probably Vetify, which used to be called ETFDB, which I thought was a better name. It's free. And there is a paid version, which I actually pay for because I like it. They have fund flow data as well, which is incredibly interesting. So for example, when we had these huge inflows into Kathy Wood's fund, her ARC funds, I was monitoring those flows via Vetify. But these fund screeners, whichever you use, Just ETF or ETFDB, or even Morningstar have some versions where you can look at ETFs as well as mutual funds. It's probably a great starting point when you're building your portfolio, isn't it? Choosing the building blocks. But also understanding the differences between different funds. And that was one of the interesting things about Bloomberg. It had a page called DES, which just was short for description. And for any asset, you pull up that asset and type DES, and it would tell you all about it. It's kind of like their Facebook page. I feel like these Bloomberg terminals have their own kind of language and impenetrable nature. Well, it's impenetrable until you get used to it. But like all these things, it becomes a familiar thing after a while. Just going to type in DES, see what's going on. Yes. And it's also a kind of measure of street cred if you knew the codes. That's it, isn't it? It's just a way for finance nurse to show off, like who can work the Bloomberg terminal fast enough? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you were struggling, then you were clearly a noob and had no respect whatsoever. Interestingly, there was never a manual for Bloomberg. You were just expected to know stuff. Really? I don't know how it got to be so popular, because everything I hear about it is like, how do you work this unwieldy beast? Well, that's very banker. You know, you just get thrown in at the deep end and expected to work it out under huge pressure. And then it was pretty much sink or swim. When we're talking about these fund screeners and putting together your portfolio, one tool that I found which was quite interesting, and I guess a little bit niche, was dataroma.com, where you can look at the portfolios that lots of what they call superstar investors, basically famous fund managers, have put together and see what they're holding right now. So you could copy their alpha. Yeah, their negative alpha. So it is a bit like copying someone else's homework rather than doing it yourself. Do you not have any sort of voyeuristic interest in what Warren Buffett's got in his portfolio? Oh, yeah. I mean, simply because people are interested. So we make videos about it. If there is a big change or something interesting, another one that people are always interested in is Michael Burry's portfolio. But the problem is you only ever find out about it well after the fact with these 13F filings. So it's kind of patchy in coverage and it's incomplete. Yeah, when you look down the column now, it has 
when they were last updated and most of them are from November. So like you say, you can't do copy trades very easily. Or if you did, you'd be holding stuff they held three months ago. As long as it's someone who doesn't trade much or very frequently, then you're kind of okay, like Warren Buffett. But I wouldn't recommend building your portfolio based on what some famous fund manager is doing. Yeah, that's probably a hiding to nothing. And I think people misunderstand that their circumstances aren't the same as a billionaire or someone who's invested wealth doesn't really matter that much because if they suffer a 50% fall, they'll still be a billionaire. So if that's a bad way of doing it, what's a good way of doing it? What are we looking at there? Well, I think anchoring your beliefs based on long-term returns, I think that's probably a good place to start. And having that long-term mindset also, very important, because you're probably not going to be able to call markets over a short period of time, but you will have a better chance of looking at what happens and knowing what happens over a longer period of time. So having those long-term asset returns is very, very helpful indeed. And just finding the data for those long-term asset returns used to be so hard, right? But now there are several free sources which are incredibly valuable. The first that comes to mind is the Bogleheads Simba spreadsheet. Great name, but what does it do? So what this has is a long time series for US large funds. And what they've done is they've curated a set of funds which cover most of the large factor tilts, but also, for example, US large caps, mid caps, small caps, small cap value, small cap growth, large cap value, large cap growth, all of the variations of things which you might be interested in. And not just stock funds either. Yeah, it's got bonds as well. It's got money market funds. And furthermore, it's got total return, which is incredibly valuable. Total real return, as well as nominal return. Because what you really care about over the long term is beating inflation. So you can see which funds have done that consistently, but also which styles of investing have done very well and when they did well. And as I understand it, this tool... Is kind of an open source project put together by fans of Jack Bogle and passive investing over the years. And it's grown into this incredibly valuable resource. Well, what's kind of cool is their relationship with Vanguard, because obviously Jack Bogle founded Vanguard. And for example, the Bogleheads have an annual meeting. I think it's on the premises of Vanguard themselves because they're quite willing to host them because they're so psychologically in tune with the principles of Jack Bogle. They also provide help, I think, with a return series that go into the Simba spreadsheet. So there is buy-in from Vanguard and other fund managers, I think, to create the database. But it is annual data. That's one of the drawbacks of it. So if you're looking for monthly returns, it just isn't going to be there. But if you're looking over a long period of time, that doesn't really matter as much anyway. And what are some other sources of historic returns data we might look to? Well, one I've been using a long time is Robert Schiller's data. Even when I worked in investment banking, that was useful because that takes the S&P total return and real return, and that goes back all the way to the 1870s. And I think the way he patched this together was to make some poor students sit in some dark library, digging out old copies of the Wall Street Journal and various other trade magazines, I guess, and type in the numbers for stock prices. That's the beauty of being an academic, isn't it? You can just sort of rope in a load of free labour. <laughs> That's right. Cheap labour as well, yeah. But he makes this freely available. It's on his Irrational Exuberance website. And I had a bit of a scare recently because I thought he'd passed away because 
<laughs> the numbers stopped updating and I thought, oh no, oh no. And then I wrote to uh, his assistant who said, oh no, he's just, he's just on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the only way you'd know an academic has died. The numbers just stop updating. <laughs> and you're like, oh man, I missed the funeral. <laughs> But, you know, I hate to say it, I'm just worried about his health now. What's going to happen to the Schiller spreadsheet once he's gone? There needs to be a living will for it. Yeah, I'm sure people would chip in, you know, just to keep the numbers up to date. There's about four columns in the spreadsheet, but the beauty of it is it goes back a long way. And it's got his cape measure, of course, because that was his baby. And it's got the new measure he came up with, which is called the excess cape yield. All of that's very useful stuff if you're looking at long-term series or stats on the S&P to work out drawdown strategies. I just wish we had something equivalent for the UK. So if you know any grad students. Yeah. But in terms of academics, he's not the only one publishing really useful data. The other one I think we've talked about a lot before is the Pharma and French Factor series, and they publish all that data as well. And again, that goes back to 1927. And I think it's based itself on the CRSP database. And if you read Robin Wigglesworth's book about index funds, he talks about the CRSP data as being one of the founding things which led to the passive investment movement. Because before that was published, the CRSP data, people just didn't know what the benchmarks to compare were. So now you can compare all of these active funds against these indices that we've all got. But that wasn't possible previously. So this data from Farmer and French allows you to look at returns for the factors they identify for outperformance. So that might be value stocks or momentum stocks or small caps and compare that, I guess, to the broad market and to active funds. And it goes back for ages, you know, going back to 1927, 100 years of data. So you can really see which factors have done well and which haven't. If you're into modelling and building your own models, these are the places to go. And also the MSCI data, they have some great data too. But if you're not so into building your own models and back tests, are there any tools that will do it for us? Yeah, the one I love is Portfolio Charts. It's just so good. And, you know, I've been talking about it for ages. It's got a very simple interface and it answers all the questions you'd want to ask about a portfolio. So if you're saving, how long will it take to save a certain amount? given historic returns. So it'll look at every 30-year period, say, and given a certain savings rate, it'll tell you whether you're going to reach your target. Or the probability of reaching your target, right? Assuming that the future resembles each of these periods in the past. So it comes up with a probabilistic explanation of everything it does. It also has the ulcer index. That's the first place I came across it, which measures the depth and duration of crashes for a given portfolio. The way I think of PortfolioCharts.com is kind of like a recipe tester. So you can cook up a recipe, mix in a bit of small cap value, some long-term bonds, some gold, some growth stocks, and then see if it tastes nice. But you can be your own Merry Berry because you can create your own portfolio. Also, the way it's structured is very good, which is not to think about single funds, but to think about styles. So instead of choosing a particular country's equity, it says small cap value, small cap blend, small cap growth. Those would be the small cap choices. Then it's got mid cap value, blend and growth. And it's got large cap value, blend and growth. And you can change your currency. That's amazing, isn't it? Because so many tools are US only. This one lets us be British. 
Not only that, but if you've got a particular portfolio and it's got its own off-the-shelf portfolios like the Golden Butterfly, which they came up with, and I did a whole video about it, it tells you the ISIN code, back to ISIN codes, of each of the funds which are cheapest in your country, which is based on the currency you entered. So it is very good. Yeah, and once you put together a portfolio, it will give you so many interesting insights on it. Like historically, what would the safe withdrawal rate have been to stop you running out of money throughout a retirement, for example? Yeah, safe withdrawal rate, perpetual withdrawal rate, all of that stuff I kind of got to grips with and also looked at their returns for various portfolios using portfolio charts. So I found it really useful. And it's interesting to note that it's based on the Simba spreadsheet in terms of its returns. That's certainly their key input. They do take information, I think, from a lot of different places. But it's important to remember it only goes back to the 1970s on PortfolioCharts.com. So it captures, you know, 50 years of returns, but not back to the 1870s like some of them. Which is fine. You know, I mean, does it make sense to go back to the 1870s anyway? I think the other thing which you can learn from it, which is interesting, is that a lot of portfolios, people um and are over the, you know, 1% here, 2% there. Lots of portfolios just give very similar returns. And the simple fact is that if you don't have a lot of equity in your portfolio, you're just not going to do very well. And I think that comes out very clearly from their, from their back tests. And the thing when you're considering lots of different portfolios, I think, is to work out what your floor is as an investor and then focus on the metric which addresses that. So, for example, if you are really cautious and liable to sell in a big market crash, then you want to focus on something like the ulcer index, as you said, making sure your portfolio is not likely to suffer 50% drawdowns. But also to notice what effect it has on returns if you're super cautious, because if you're completely keyed up for risk, you just put it into money market funds. You know, you won't have drawdowns, but it'll be catastrophic. But you won't go anywhere. You've got the handbrake on. You haven't even got the engine on. Another one which is great for backtesting a strategy is Portfolio Visualizer. This one's a bit US-centric, certainly in terms of the currency exposure, but also the funds that it chooses. But what it allows you to do is to look at the risk of your portfolio and look at the potential returns for your portfolio. And I think you can calibrate your own Monte Carlo sims, which is always something to be welcomed. So yeah, you've got the Monte Carlo simulation. You've also got a factor analysis tool. You can look at asset analytics and look at correlations between your assets. That's quite tricky to do. So very handy overall. And if you're into Monte Carlo simulation and you're just about to enter retirement or you just want to plan your retirement, then something like FI Calc is very helpful. Now, what that lets you do, you tell it the size of the pot you're starting retirement with. So say a million dollars or a million pounds. You tell it the portfolio allocation. So how much stocks, how much bonds, how much cash and also the withdrawal strategy which you're going to use. And it's got a whole bunch of these. For example, Guyton Klinger, it's got three variations of that, in fact, or just constant withdrawal rate. And then you can see whether your money's going to run out before you die. Of course, it's probabilistic. You don't actually know with certainty, but it comes up with historic periods when you would have run out of money. So you can go back to those periods and see which ones did well, which ones didn't, and try and figure out whether you're going to be okay. So I think it's brilliant in terms of the way it presents the data very clearly, but also explains the drawdown rules. And you can say, thank God I didn't retire in the year 2000. (laughs) Isn't that the worst one in recent decades? In recent decades, yeah. 
because you had like 13 years of being in the red and you'd be drawing down your portfolio. I mean, the thing with all these backtest tools and modeling tools is that what they basically do is take all the historical record they can find and simulate your portfolio for those historic returns. But when we're looking forward, the returns we actually get over the next 30 years might not be the same as they were at any point in history. And one way to sort of calibrate your expectations for market returns is to look at what is the current valuation of, let's say, the stock market. Is it expensive? Is it cheap? If it's expensive, then we'll probably get lower returns than we would in a situation when it was cheap. Now, it's not a very strong relationship. You often find markets do pretty well, even though you start off expensive, but it certainly has an effect. It's not a very strong statistical effect, but it is real. Now, one of the sources we use for that a lot, and you'll often hear us talking about it, is Yardani. And they used to make their charts freely available as PDF files. Now it's on their website, and it's a more restricted set of graphs. But still, it's a very valuable tool. If you want to see what US small caps are valued at, it presents that data. And the data for equity markets all around the world. Yeah, so it's got the MSCI indices, it's got various styles and small cap, mid cap, large cap. And it's got things like the mega cap eight, and it'll show you the valuations for those or the S&P with those and with those removed. It's just a really comprehensive source of data if you care about price to earnings ratios and peg ratios and all these things which give us a hint about whether stocks are fairly priced. There's also a tool from Barclays Indices which shows the CAPE ratio for lots of markets around the world and the historic CAPE ratio going back decades, which is not always easy information to find. Yeah, having that time series is very valuable. And I always roll that out at the beginning of each year when I do my market outlook for that year because I, I just think it's useful just to see where we're starting and cape ratios kind of do matter and the final tool we're going to mention today is again looking at valuation and it's from the dean of valuation aswath damodaran so he publishes a spreadsheet which has such interesting things as ev over ebitda by country which again is really interesting and really hard to find but equity risk premium as well. I think he does that by country too. So you can roughly work out what return you should expect to get from every country. But he does it even for markets where you're thinking, what's the point of this, Aswath? So he's got Albania, number of firms, one. <laughs> he's got all the numbers. <laughs> Cambodia, number of firms, one. Burkina Faso, three companies. <laughs> and, then all, <laughs> and then all the data. So he was really going for completeness here. I've gone all in on Burkina Faso. Well, you must be a value investor then, because look at that. EV over EBITDA for Burkina Faso, just 2.91, Roman. Wow. Of course, that's why I went for it. But what he also provides is education about how to value a company. And he shows you exactly how he comes up with the ERP. For example, he does for the S&P, he publishes this every year. And he goes into his spreadsheet, he shows what it was in the past. And he shows exactly how he comes up with the numbers. So we focused on, you know, all these free tools. But is it fair to say you sometimes do get what you pay for? Like, are there tools you think are worth paying for? Oh, definitely. And the ones I use most, to be fair, are now paid ones. So, you know, I mentioned the fact that Bloomberg was unbelievably good for bonds. I've actually found something which is as good, which is called C-bonds. You know, we've got an affiliate link for people who want to 
try it out for themselves. It's not cheap, obviously, because the coverage is huge and very comprehensive. But if you want data on bonds, about credit ratings, you know, it's really incredible. And it's so nice to have that back. You know, I'd really miss that ability to look up individual bonds. But also things like Coifin, if you do pay for it, you do get a next level version of the app itself, where you've got more screens that you can put in and, you know, more functionality. Stockopedia is another one which I use, and that allows you to look at single stock analytics. And it's got an incredible stock screener and off the shelf metrics like its stock rank, which looks at things like value, quality, momentum, and combines them into one number. So I use that to create a small cap value, momentum, quality portfolio in the UK. You've forgotten any factors there? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Throw everything at it, it'll work. (laughs) But that's what stock rank is. It's a combination of those three, because historically those have combined pretty well to forecast good returns. So, you know, that's how I came up with that portfolio. Is there something you've forgotten, Roman? Because whenever you're on your live streams and you share your screen, SharePad is inevitably what pops up. Now, SharePad is one I've been using for so long. And in fact, I did it before I worked in investment banking when it was a dial-up modem. So it was literally screeching at me, you know, when you used to have to dial up. I don't suppose you remember this, Michael. Of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. I still use it all the time, simply because it's my go-to for UK data and for UK fund coverage. It's just incredible. So between all these tools, have you managed to cobble together a Bloomberg terminal? Just about. And how's the Bloomberg terminal fund working out? Not very well. Although people have been chipping in, you know, doing these live streams that I do. People say, here's some money for your Bloomberg fund. Do you ever tell them that it's 20 grand a year? Sadly, no, because that would just crush their spirit. But look, you know, maybe one day, maybe it's going to be the case that, you know, if we sell out to private equity, it's going to be uh, Bloomberg's all around, Michael. You, me, Teddy. Just look at the alpha we'll generate. Now, data is all very well, but if you want to make sense of it and discuss it with other people, I think it means a lot more. And you can do that as part of our community. Just go to our website, pensioncraft.com, to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, do backtests really work? We've talked a lot about them today and all the different tools and data you can put into them to try and work out how a portfolio is going to perform. But does that tell you anything about how it actually will perform? I think the short answer is no. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen, but it does help you calibrate your expectations. And I think that's very useful. So for example, if you're very cautious... You can say, well, you know, I want to have a money market fund and that's the risk I want to take or I want to use a cash ISA, which is equivalent. What kind of returns will that have for my kids if I invest for them at birth and I keep the money in there for 20 years until they're an adult? And you'll see the catastrophic outcome pretty clearly. Whereas most people put money into these cash ISAs for their grandchildren or whatever, never thinking that it's going to be an awful outcome for them. So I think understanding this relationship between risk and return and how it changes over time, such that over the long term, risky things like stocks become the safe thing and safe things like money market funds become the risky thing. Building that intuition is something that comes with these tools. 
But what are the limitations of backtests? Like if I put in a really carefully crafted portfolio into portfolio charts or some other tool, and I look at it and say, oh, I found one which is only ever going to draw down by a maximum of 20%. Brilliant. I can hold that for the long term. Am I sort of setting myself up for complacency and a kind of false precision? Because the future might not look like the past. And it never will. I think that's an important point. And I think crises are the thing which are really the downfall of these back tests because no two crises are exactly the same. If you're allocating for a 2008 type crash or maybe a dot-com bubble crash, then you're going to have a particularly crafted portfolio which won't do well if we have, say, a meteor hitting New York. (laughs) Not much is going to do well in that situation. (laughs) Well, the thing is, I mean, even if New York disappeared, markets would carry on eventually. It would be a big blow, a huge blow. But even the US wouldn't have been wiped out because it's such a big country. What size meteor are you talking about? (laughs) Wiped out the dinosaurs? I'm not wiping out the entire eastern seaboard. It's just kind of like, oh, anyway, that's a bad example. So let's say that China invades Taiwan. I mean, that's not something that we've seen before. And it would have a huge impact if there were some kind of sanctions levelled against China, which didn't allow capital to flow freely to China. And of course, it would disrupt lots of supply chains, commodity supply chains globally, and it would screw up lots of economies which depend on China for their exports, countries like Australia, for example, but many European countries as well, like Germany. So you can't really model that in a backtest? Well, this is the point. You can't really see what would suffer the most in that kind of situation. So this is why, as you suggested in your question, just looking at a 1% improvement or a 2% improvement by tweaking the weights is probably a waste of time. You just want something that's pretty good most of the time. The thing I worry about sometimes is the correlations, which have looked stable maybe for 30 years, but can suddenly decorrelate. So the obvious example is what happened in 2022, when people who are holding bonds to hedge their stocks Well, that no longer worked and bonds and stocks fell together. If you'd only looked back over the last 30 years, say, that would have seemed to have come completely out of nowhere. Yeah, that's right. You'd have to go back to the 70s and 80s high inflation period to see that correlation pick up in the past. And I think that would have, you know, been a problem if you hadn't known that. Because I remember you saying to me once that bank risk systems tend to be calibrated on a window of like 15 years or something. So once the 2008 crisis dropped out of the window, woohoo, we were back into fun times. Some risk systems certainly work that way. But usually they also have the ability to replay crises. So that might have been picked up in one of those simulations. But yeah, they're always going to be fallible in some way. I guess the temptation when you have a nice backtesting tool is to try and game it in some way. And you've got all this data. And through a mix of survivorship bias and cherry picking, you can almost craft a portfolio which seems magical in some way. But that's because you're looking at the data and throwing a lot of stuff at it. You're like overfitting the data. Yeah, that's one of the things that's always a problem is overfitting, but also knowing for the back tests how to do it so that you don't overfit. That's always an issue. So for example, many people say that gold is a good inflation hedge. And yet, if you look at recent history, that hasn't been the case. But if you go back to the 70s, it did incredibly well. And that was because it was the end of Bretton Woods. Gold was finding its own price, you could say. And then it went way up 
to incredible levels peaking in 1980. And in fact, it's still in a drawdown from 1980. So whenever people say to me, gold's done so well, you always think, well, it really depends on the period you look at. And that period was just astonishing for gold. But the question you've got to ask yourself is, are we going to get another end of Bretton Woods? And the answer is no, because you know, we don't have that monetary system anymore. Yeah, so it does kind of flatter gold, doesn't it, in a portfolio, provided it includes the 70s and 80s. So I guess it's disputed about whether gold has a place in a portfolio as a small allocation. But I think one way to avoid overfitting is simplicity. You know, you just have as few assets as you can in your portfolio in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Diversification obviously is a good thing and you do need some diversification, but do you really need, you know, 20 different asset classes in order to achieve that diversification? And the answer is no. But the other point I think is that for a lot of asset classes, you just don't have that much history. So for example, if you look at real estate, it just doesn't have time series which go back to 1920. Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin doesn't go back very long at all. And emerging markets also, very little history. So if you don't have the history, you can't really judge it on the same standards as you do, say, US equity. And this is why I'm always coming back to US equity, because I've got the time series. It doesn't mean don't invest in that other stuff, right? It's just it's a little bit more on faith, maybe? Yeah, that's right. You just have to guess that it's going to be reasonable and kind of like the US, which may not be the case. So just be cautious about relying too much on, on time series and backtesting. Sometimes you'll miss asset classes, which are actually very good because they don't have much history. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.